welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. This program is intended for a print-impaired audience and is brought to you by the Georgia Radio Reading Service, SCARS. Hello, I'm Paula Ferguson, and this is the AARP Magazine. I will begin reading from the January-February 2023 edition of the AARP Bulletin. Our first article is the cover story, America's War Against Heart Disease. 75 years later, after it started, we're losing the battle against our number one killer. Here's why and what will help by Sarah Harara. Illustrations by Chad Hagen. Lori Cubitt's eyes popped open at 4 a.m. like an alarm went off into my brain. She could barely breathe. The pain in her chest felt like a bonfire. Her jaw hurt so much that she thought it would explode. As the sun rose over her lakeside cabin in Pelican Rapids, Minnesota, her husband rushed her to the nearest hospital some 30 minutes away. I was scared, she says. Her father had died of a heart attack, but Cubitt's was just 54 years old. She didn't smoke. Her cholesterol was normal, her weight and blood pressure just a little high. I thought heart attacks happened to heavy smokers, people who were 50 pounds overweight and people in their 70s and 80s, she says. But when she reached the hospital, blood tests and heart scans confirmed her worst fear. Her left anterior descending artery, the heart's largest, was 99.9% blocked. They were wheeling me into surgery, she recalls. I thought, am I going to die? Cubitt's out-of-the-blue heart attack illustrates a scary new reality. After decades of steady decline, heart disease, long America's number one killer, and the third leading cause of disability, is screaming back with life-changing and often fatal consequences. Return of the Killer It was 1948 when President Harry Truman signed the National Heart Act, establishing the National Heart Institute, now the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Truman also funded the landmark Framingham Heart Study, the world's longest-running population study of heart disease. For the next six decades, thanks to the explosion in both research and treatment, we were winning the war on heart disease. Deaths from heart attacks, heart failure, heart rhythm disorders, and related conditions fell a stunning 69% between 1950 and 2009. But lately, the good news has been overshadowed by major reversals. We're looking at a crisis in terms of lowering life expectancy for the first time in decades, says cardiologist Saudia Khan, M.D., assistant professor of medicine and of preventive medicine at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. New reports must point to COVID and the opioid crisis as the drivers of this shift in overall life expectancy. But a 2022 report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, also lists the rising rate of heart disease deaths as a major reason for that decline. Among the new heart health trends that are deeply concerning to Khan and other cardiologists, midlife and younger adults are dying of heart diseases more often. Death rates from heart disease rose 8.5% for adults ages 45 to 64 between 2010 and 2020, says Stephen Sidney, MD, Director of Research Clinics with Kaiser Permanente, North California. Record numbers of older adults are dying, too. Fatalities due to heart disease among 65-plus Americans rose from 475,097 in 2011 to 556,665 in 2020. More recent data isn't yet available. 
Increasingly, the heart disease rate fell over those years. However, the big growth in America's older population means a rise in total deaths. The COVID pandemic injected rocket fuel into the heart disease resurgence. In 2020 and 2021, heart attack deaths increased by up to 21% for those 45 to 64 and 17.9% for people 65 and older, according to a Cedars-Sinai Medical Center study. That might simply be a side effect of the pandemic's long-term legacy of weight gain, inactivity, and stress. But the virus itself may be playing a direct role. A large 2022 study found lingering heart risks a year after COVID infection. Cleveland Clinic cardiologist Larissa Terenchenko, MD, told the journal Science that contracting COVID could emerge as the number one risk factor for future heart disease. Beyond heart attacks in 2011, graphic designer James L. Young II stood in a Detroit parking lot gasping for air. He was just 40 years old, but years of smoking, beer, and lots of fast food had left him with high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and kidney disease. He ended up in a hospital emergency room. The cardiologist on staff said, if you'd waited one more week to come to this facility, you'd be talking about you in the past tense. That's a wake-up call. Young wasn't suffering a heart attack. He had congestive heart failure, a condition in which the heart is unable to pump blood efficiently. Doctors recommended implanting a pacemaker. What's option B? Young asked. The cardiologist gave him about a month to improve his heart function by losing weight and exercising. He swapped breakfast bacon for sautéed kale, quit smoking and drinking, gave up fast food, and started walking. At first, he made it just a quarter of a way around a local high school track, but he soon built up to 10 to 12 miles a day as he listened to house music through his earbuds. Over time, Young lost weight, reduced his medications, ran a couple of half marathons, and returned to college. Now, 51, he's a graduate student in public health at Purdue University and an American Heart Association national ambassador, telling his personal story and serving on an AHA committee that awards funds to heart disease researchers. Drinking, smoking, and eating were my heavy band-aids, Young says. I had to learn to value myself as a human being. As Young discovered, cardiovascular disease isn't just about heart attacks. It's a broad category of disorders that covers the blood vessels, muscle, electrical system, and valves, as well as the functioning of the heart. That's why clots in your leg veins are technically a type of cardiovascular disease. That said, the primary forms of heart disease include coronary artery disease, or CAD, when plaque narrows or blocks blood vessels that deliver oxygen and fuel to your heart muscle. This is the classic cause of heart attack. Heart rhythm problems, such as atrial fibrillation, or AFib, when the heart's natural electrical system stops functioning normally, making heartbeats erratic too fast or too slow. Heart valve malfunctions and heart failure, which is often when the heart loses its capacity to pump efficiently, often due to damage from a heart attack, high blood pressure, diabetes, or CAD. Cardiovascular disease also includes stroke, which is caused by blockages or bleeding in blood vessels in the brain. All told, cardiovascular disease is expected to have killed more than 650,000 Americans in 2022. That's roughly one in every five deaths. 
Each year, 2.5 million of us are expected to have a heart attack or undergo a procedure to open or bypass clogged coronary arteries, and 7 million more will live with chest pain triggered by narrowing of those blood vessels, according to the CDC. Overall, 77.5% of men and 75.4% of women ages 60 to 79 have some form of cardiovascular disease, according to a 2021 report from the American Heart Association. Among those of us 80 and older, 90% have it. Victory and loss. Heart disease wasn't always a major killer. In fact, it was relatively uncommon in the U.S. in 1900, when life expectancy was a cruel 47.3 years and pneumonia, flu, and other infections were the top killers. But with the discovery of vaccines and antibiotics, Everyday infections and injuries became less lethal. At the same time, another health-related seismic shift occurred, the rise of unhealthy living. During World War II, Americans began to smoke more, sit more at work, eat more saturated fat, and we became enamored with sugar and processed foods. The result? Untold millions of Americans upholstered their coronary arteries with gunky, fatty plaque. Between 1940 and 1948, Heart disease deaths soared by 20%. That emerging crisis prompted President Truman to fund the National Heart Act and the Framingham Heart Study. When researchers began the study, so little was known about heart disease that their budget ironically included money for office ashtrays. The early findings of this new research push were bombshells. Smoking, high blood pressure, diabetes, and being overweight all contributed to heart risk Obvious today, but groundbreaking information in its day. And so a worried nation slowly began changing its habits. Heart disease death rates began dropping in 1968, so fast that in 1978 the National Institute of Health held a conference to determine whether the improvements were for real. An avalanche of heart disease discoveries were helping to turn the tide. Among them, open-heart bypass surgery began saving lives in 1960. ACE inhibitors, among the most widely prescribed blood pressure drugs today, were approved in 1981. The first cholesterol-lowering satin, a type of drug now taken by more than 35 million Americans, was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 1987. In 1970, 38% of older adults hospitalized with a heart attack died in 2010. Just 7% did. As death rates continued to decline, Experts predicted heart disease would become America's number one killer behind cancer as early as 2013. But then things changed. Twin epidemics. I don't think we've ever really won the war on heart disease, says Andrew Freeman, MD, Director of Cardiovascular Prevention and Wellness at National Jewish Health in Denver. Despite excellent medical therapies, the most powerful of all treatments we have is lifestyle, and we've paid lip service to lifestyle for decades. America's obesity and diabetic epidemics took off in 1985. 25 years later, heart disease deaths began inching upward. Today, 42% of Americans are obese, generally defined as having a body mass index above 30, and another 30% are overweight, a BMI between 25 and 30, according to the National Institutes of Health. More than 37 million have diabetes and 96 million more, including 48% of older adults, have prediabetes, according to the CDC. 
we have more cases of heart disease because important drivers of cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, metabolic syndrome are growing more and more prevalent in this society, says Inequi Onyewanyi, MD, professor of medicine and chief of cardiology at the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. And in the fight against heart disease, we are moving in the wrong direction. Rates of well-controlled diabetes fell from 57% to 50% between 2007 and 2018. Deaths due to high blood pressure increased by about 50% between 1999 and 2017. In contrast, the prevalence of high cholesterol fell about 42% between 1999 and 2018, likely due to the widespread use of statins. Major reasons for this are limited access to health resources, the ever-expanding number of Americans with obesity, and reduced access to heart-healthy foods, says Nicholas Ruthman, MD, a staff cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. The neglected majority. Ten days before her 55th birthday, Vonnie Gaither, a high school career counselor and mother of two, boarded a plane in Salt Lake City bound for her home in Anchorage, Alaska. I buckled my seatbelt, talked to the person sitting on my left, and that's the last thing I remember, she says. Flight attendants found her slumped in her seat minutes later, unconscious and without a pulse. Flight attendants performed CPR and used a defibrillator to shock her heart so it would beat again. She woke up from an induced coma a day later to find her family gathered around her hospital bed. Her surgeon explained that she has suffered a heart attack. Three stents have been inserted into her heart to open a major blockage. Back home a week later, her daughter threw a 55 and alive party for Gaither, then accompanied her on walks three times a week on a local middle school running track. Gaither rediscovered broccoli and spinach, brought fruit salads at Costco, and switched to turkey burgers, ground turkey in spaghetti sauce, and turkey bacon at breakfast. I love steak, but I eat it about once a month now, she says. It's a celebration. She took medications to lower her cholesterol, control her blood pressure, and reduce the risk for heart-threatening clots, and she went to cardiac rehab exercise classes. But she still required triple bypass surgery a few months later due to a new buildup of plaque. Today at 70, Gaither is retired and spends her time painting, bowling, and socializing with her friends and family. And she wonders about her heart risk. There's a family history, she says, but there's more. Gaither is a black woman, and that elevates her risk in two ways. For decades, women were underrepresented in clinical trials, and their heart attack symptoms dismissed in emergency rooms as stomach pain or even emotional problems. The American Heart Association published its first treatment guidelines for women in 1999, but it's taken longer for science to discover that the anatomy and electrical pathways of the female heart are unique, which may help explain why a woman's heart attack symptoms can be different from a man's. Yet women's heart health is still understudied, according to a 2022 review of research in the Journal of Circulation Research. And women's heart attack warning signs are too often overlooked. In fact, in 2019, just 44% of women in a national survey identified heart disease as the top killer of women, and the vast majority were unable to identify many of the symptoms of a heart attack. Both health professionals seem to have the same difficulty identifying heart disease in women. The same study found that when women suffering heart attacks arrive in an emergency room, they experience longer wait times and are less likely to be seen by a heart specialist 
or receive an echocardiogram or potentially life-saving heart drugs. Another study found that women tend to wait longer before calling 911 when they're having a heart attack, up to 37 minutes longer. Women are less likely to receive preventive care, such as cholesterol-lowering statins and treatments for heart failure and atrial fibrillation. Gender biases in medicine still persist, says cardiologist Emily S. Lau, MD of the Corrigan Women's Heart Health Program at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. There continues to be a pervasive belief, either conscious or subconscious, among healthcare providers that heart disease is less common among women and that women are less likely to derive benefit from therapies. And we have not trained our healthcare providers to recognize the unique ways that women experience heart disease. Indeed, while men are at a greater risk for heart disease when they're younger, by the time women reach their 70s and 80s, their risk of heart disease actually exceeds that of men. And recent research shows that high blood pressures or diabetes during pregnancy is an early warning sign of lifelong elevated heart risk, even if the conditions resolved after the women gave birth. But doctors seldom explore this aspect of a woman's health history. In the same way, the war against heart disease has been slow to recognize the heart and health needs of African Americans, Hispanics, and other racial and ethnic groups. According to a 2018 CDC report, heart disease mortality rates for black adults are 21% higher than for whites. And the black versus white death rate gap actually increased by 16.3% between 1968 and 2015. Social determinants of health like education, neighborhood-level poverty, and access to healthy food explain much of this difference in heart disease rates, a 2022 Feinberg School of Medicine study found. This is important because it refutes the myth that the disparity is unexplained or caused by genetics, says Kahn, one of the study authors. Adding to the disparity, just 3% of cardiologists are black and just 4% are Hispanic, According to a 2021 study, clinical research has shown that seeing a doctor from your own racial or ethnic background leads to better outcomes, being able to follow recommendations, making lifestyle changes, and adhering to treatments, says Onwa, president of the Association of Black Cardiologists. For Latinos, recent studies are puncturing the controversial Hispanic paradox, a belief that Hispanics enjoy protection from heart disease due to strong families, social support, food, or perhaps even genetics. A large 2022 University of Miami study found that 6.1% of Hispanic women develop heart disease, a higher figure than white women in the study. So did 9.2% of Hispanic men, a higher figure than black and white men. The idea of the Hispanic paradox could be hazardous to the health of Hispanic women and men. Johns Hopkins University researchers warned in a 2022 study worsening the existing poor cardiovascular health among the Hispanic population. We as a country need to realize that heart disease isn't happening to everybody equally, Khan says. There are significant racial and ethnic inequities. If we don't turn this around, we are going to see an exasperation of those disparities. The latest heart disease breakthroughs. After surgeries for an aortic aneurysm, when the aorta walls balloon out, two hernias and a problematic leg artery, Stephen Rao got a stern warning from his surgeon. Decades of smoking had damaged his blood vessels. If I wanted to stay around longer, 
I had to make some decisions, says Raul, 63, a hospital systems network engineer from Cape Coral, Florida, who had puffed a pack a day for more than 25 years. With all the grandkids I have, I wanted to see them grow up. Raul began swimming and biking with his wife as she trained for triathlons and began following a more plant-based diet. And he signed up for an innovative test that detects if plaque is clogging the arteries of the heart. The test known as coronary computed tomography and angiography, CCTA, is widely used in people with early warning symptoms of heart disease, such as chest pain. But now some cardiologists are using the test with people like Raul, who have risk factors like smoking but exhibit no warning signs. The idea is to look inside the heart while there's still time to use medications and lifestyle changes to attack dangerous plaque before a heart attack happens, says James Nin. MD, former director of the Dalio Institute of Cardiovascular Imaging at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Men developed an FDA-approved system called Clearly for evaluating heart plaque and CCTA images and assigning it a risk stage from no risk to severe risk. Heart doctors have never actually directly measured heart disease, Men says. It sounds weird, but we haven't. We have used factors like an abnormal stress test or a blockage, yet 50% of heart attacks happen to people who haven't had any early warning signs. Clearly could reduce the risk for those individuals who don't show any outward signs of being at risk, Mint says. The screening technique shows not just the amount of plaque, but also the type. Hard, calcified plaque is relatively safe, while soft plaques can rupture and spin off heart-menacing blood clots. Seeing the buildup and knowing its type can help doctors write treatment plans, and seeing actual pictures of what's going on inside their heart may motivate people to stick with medications and healthy habits. Half the people prescribed statins will not be taking them after one year. And by five years, 90% are not taking their medications, Mint notes. The day after his scan, Raoul saw his own coronary arteries for the first time. It was eye-opening, he says. I had one artery that was 100% blocked. The majority were 30 to 40% blocked, and the majority was soft plaque. Seeing the state of his heart prompted his doctor to change his blood pressure and cholesterol medications and inspired Raoul to upgrade his eating habits and get more exercise. His cholesterol and blood pressure numbers dropped into a healthier range, and he's lost 35 pounds. In December, he will repeat the CCTA test in hopes to see positive changes. Not everyone agrees with the idea of CCTA screenings for people with no heart disease warning symptoms. In 2021, the American Medical Association advised consumers that there was no high-quality evidence to support routine use and urged the use of exercise stress tests, which identify blockages in the heart. But the American College of Cardiology has recently partnered with men in his research, and the Clearly system is covered by some insurance plans in October. Medicare began reimbursing $950 for the system, too. The fight for new answers. New uses of CCTA screenings are hardly the only advanced weapon being deployed in the war on heart disease. Exciting recent breakthroughs include advances in surgical techniques, implantable devices, and more effective medication. New plumbing tools. In 30% of the 965,000 artery-clearing heart procedures performed each year in the U.S., cardiologists face a tough problem. A hard calcium-packed shell covering soft, 
gooey plaque and blood vessel walls. This hardened shell can resist cardiologists' efforts to deploy artery-widening balloons and stents to hold arteries open. But a new technique called intravascular lithotripsy approved by the FDA in 2021 uses shock waves to break up these hardened deposits. It is similar to technology used to break up kidney stones. It's easier for interventional cardiologists to use the devices threaded through arm or leg arteries to the heart and may work better for hard areas deep within plaque. Coronary artery disease patients in their late 60s, 70s, and 80s and older will generally have calcium in their blockages, so this is an important tool for treating heart disease in older persons, particularly the very elderly, says Quinn Capers, MD, a cardiologist at the University of Texas Southern Medical Center in Dallas. In the clinical trial of 384 people with hard plaque, 92% of them were able to receive a stent after lithotripsy with no heart attacks within 30 days. Meanwhile, doctors are now deploying stents that are stronger, safer, and more flexible providing a variety of new options for patients. On the horizon are biodegradable stents that keep arteries open only long enough for medications and lifestyle interventions to work. When the artery heals, they dissolve. Advanced heart drugs. When sodium glucose transporter 2, SGLT-2, inhibitors burst onto the research scene, scientists thought this new class of drugs would be great at lowering blood sugar. They got a big surprise. They really reduce episodes of heart failure in the patients with diabetes. Because of this, and because the drugs don't lower blood sugar if it is not elevated, we tested SGLT-2 inhibitors in people with heart failure without diabetes, and the drug is effective in those patients too, says cardiologist Nancy K. Schweitzer, MD, professor and vice chair for clinical research in the Department of Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and editor-in-chief of the journal Circulation, Heart Failure. In a 2022 analysis of a five major studies, SGLT-2 inhibitors cut the risk of hospitalization or death from heart failure by 33%. Meanwhile, there are new options for people who can't tolerate statins or who eventually just stop taking them. Cholesterol-smashing medications called PCSK9 inhibitors are given by injection every three or six months at your doctor's office or hospital. They block the breakdown of LDL receptors, so more bad cholesterol is shunted to your liver for disposal. They lower LDLs by 50 to 60%, and they also reduce the odds of a heart attack by 15 to 20% more than statins alone. Effective new implants. Until 12 years ago, older and sicker adults with stiff, diseased heart valves were considered inoperable. Getting a new valve was deemed too risky because it required open heart surgery. Since then, cardiologists have developed a heart valve delivery method called transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR. Now patients can have their aortic valves repaired in a procedure where a new valve is implanted using a catheter inserted into the femoral artery in the groin, Caper says. Some patients are discharged from the hospital after an overnight stay with a bandage on their groin. In 2019, Cleveland Medical Center researchers found that deaths from diseased heart valves in older adults fell suddenly starting in 2013, at the same time that the number of TAVR procedures was increasing in the U.S. The new procedure may be the reason, they note. Today, TAVR is more common than open-heart surgery for replacing the aortic valve. 
It's an amazing advance over the past 20 years, says interventional cardiologist B. Hadley Wilson, M.D., Executive Vice Chair at Atrium Health Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute in North Carolina and President-elect of the American College of Cardiology. And there are two photo insets of the gentleman that was referred to earlier in the article. The caption, James L. Young, the second in 2011 on the left, before he entered the hospital with a heart emergency and 2021 on the right, a decade after he quit smoking and started to exercise and meet more healthily. And the photo on the left is him prior to him losing the weight and gaining a healthy lifestyle. And that's all the time we have for today's cover story, America's War Against Heart Disease. 75 years after it started, we're losing the battle against our number one killer. Here's why and what will help by Sari Harara. And that concludes today's edition of the AARP Magazine. This has been Paula Ferguson for the Georgia Radio Reading Service. Thank you for listening to GARS. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. This program is intended for a print-impaired audience and is brought to you by Mind's Eye. Welcome to the Blindness and Disability News Hour from Mind's Eye Radio in Belleville, Illinois. This program covers the week of February 12th, 2023. Welcome back to the program. Good to have you along. Hope everybody is doing well, staying warm, staying safe. We've got lots of interesting stories for you this week, so let's get started. And our first stop, as usually we do, is to listen to Shots Health News from NPR. That's National Public Radio. You can find them online at npr.org. This week's story was written by Rob Stein. It was originally broadcast on February 10th. As the pandemic ebbs, an influential, influential COVID tracker shuts down. In another sign of the changing state of the pandemic, an invaluable source of information about the virus over the last three years is shutting down, NPR has learned. The Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center plans to cease operations on March 10th, officials told NPR. Quote, it's bittersweet, says Lauren Gardner, an engineering professor who launched the project with one of her students on March 3rd, 2020. But it's an appropriate time to move on, unquote. When the pandemic erupted, no one knew much of anything about the virus and how to respond. Was it safe to go grocery shopping? How easily could someone get infected on a bus or train? Could runners get sick just by passing another jogger in the park? As everyone can remember, there was very little information, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, unquote, says Beth Blauer, an associate vice provost at Johns Hopkins, who has helped run the center. Quote, and when we started to see the cases move out of China and in through Europe and headed toward our shores, we knew that there were going to be a series of public policy decisions that would have to be made, unquote, Blauer says. Those decisions included where to impose dramatic but crucial public health measures. Should mayors close schools? Should governors mandate masks? Should CEOs shut down factories? Should heads of state seal borders? But there is no good data available to make those decisions. Neither the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention nor the World Health Organization were providing enough useful numbers in real time. 
So journalists and academic researchers at places like Johns Hopkins jumped in to fill the void. NPR launched its own tracker in March of 2020, drawing data from Johns Hopkins. It was viewed over 52 million times over the last three years, as readers sought to stay updated on COVID metrics. On February 1st, NPR ceased updating the page, recognizing that Americans can find the information they need on the CDC's COVID website. This was not the case early in the pandemic. Quote, I know CDC has the ability to do this and has done it numerous occasions in the past, says Dr. Ali Khan, a former CDC official who is now dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. So it was not unusual at the beginning of this COVID pandemic that they did not collect this data and put it out in a timely manner. Extremely unusual and very surprising, unquote. Johns Hopkins, quote, essentially filled the vacuum, Kahn says. That was invaluable to understand what was going on, unquote. After Johns Hopkins launched the project, the website quickly became crucial for deciding everything from where drug companies should test vaccines to where Hollywood should film movies. Even the White House and the British Prime Minister were relying on Hopkins data. Gardner recalls many conversations, quote, with people that were just out about doing their job, traveling in Japan here and there, who would tell me the dashboard was the driving force in decision-making for them, about quitting their job and then coming home so they wouldn't get sick or get stuck, unquote. The site's maps of the world and individual countries became an iconic way of tracking the virus's inoxorable spread. Quote, I would refresh my computer screen over and over the course of the workday, looking to see what the latest numbers were. Unquote, says Dr. Celine Gounder from the Kaiser Family Foundation, who was working as an infectious disease specialist at the Bellevue Hospital in New York when the pandemic began. Quote, it was really startling to see, even over the course of the day, how the numbers were evolving. I think my colleagues thought I was a little obsessive, Gounder says. But it was also watching history unfold in real time on your screen, unquote. That site, which Blower and Gardner note was created and run largely by women, cost $13 million and eventually drew more than 2.5 billion views, Blower says. Quote, it is a staggering amount of traffic, she says. These are numbers I don't think I'll ever see again in my professional career, unquote. But now that the threat of the pandemic is receding, states are reporting data less frequently, and the CDC has ramped up the agency's data reporting. The university decided it was time to shut down. Quote, there's definitely a bittersweetness about the end, Blauer says, but we are at an inflection point, unquote. Both Blower and Gardner say they hope the CDC and the public health system will continue to invest in data collection so the nation will be better prepared in the future. But they're prepared to step in if necessary. Quote, there will be another pandemic, Gardner says, and so we'll have to see, unquote. Our next story on the Blindness and Disability News Hour comes from David Goldfield, David runs his own blog site, 
and talks about links and blog posts covering Catholicism, assistive technology, puns, science fiction, and whatever else is on his mind. You can find him online at davidgoldfield.wordpress.com. We're going to read a uh, post from January 29th, which seems to be interesting and appropriate. Ten things that hospitals can do to be more inclusive and accessible. During the past 12 months, I have spent a lot of time visiting and supporting my wife in two different hospitals. I have become keenly aware of how these places often lack accessibility, which would make their experience easier and more inclusive for both patients as well as their visitors. I have nothing but admiration and respect for the medical professionals who have done so much to assist and support my wife. The following list is in no way meant to, as a criticism of doctors, nurses, surgeons, respiratory therapists, and other specialists who have provided support to us. These people should be honored and respected as much as our military and its veterans. Indeed, some of the people I have met in the medical field are true warriors and war heroes, and I am in awe of them and what they do. They see death on a regular basis, and many of them are called to save lives. Sometimes they do save those lives. Other times they are unable to do so. I cannot imagine the effect on them of this amazing and necessary work. That being said, I've had some ideas of how hospitals could be so much more inclusive. These ideas would not require technology that we don't already have. Some would require a financial investment, but they wouldn't require new technologies to be designed. While I don't have the time right now to work on this, as I'd, I'd like to help engage in advocacy at a later and more convenient time to see if we can turn some of these ideas in reality. So, number one, have either Velcro or a magnetic dock on the call bell TV remote. This would allow the patient to be able to place the item in a reachable spot without constantly losing it or having it fall off the bed out of the patient's reach. Number two, place braille labels and or raised icons on the other buttons on the call bell TV remote. They might have a braille N for nurse, but no other buttons are brailled. Do they think blind people have no interest in watching TV? Number three, braille signage on all doors. Number four, ensure that all elevators contain braille on all buttons and have audio alerts to indicate what floor has been reached. Number five, an optional TV voice remote for patients who can speak, just as you have with Comcast, Fire TV, Roku, etc. Number six, allow the patient to send text messages to the nurse's station. This way, a patient who can't speak could text, quote, I need help being repositioned, or my pure wick came loose, unquote. This way, the nurse who comes in to help the patient already knows the reason for the call. Someone who can't speak doesn't have to find a way to communicate with the nurse, and the nurse doesn't need to ask what the problem is, saving a lot of time and effort. Number seven, indoor beacons to allow blind visitors to easily locate and identify a room using an app on their phone, such as Good Maps. Number eight, 
and Alexa in every room. It could include special hospital content containing health information as they do on the TV. It could be trained to recognize specialized commands such as call the nurse or what's my heart rate, not to mention just being able to listen to a full catalog of music and radio streams. Number 10, talking telemetry. Patients should be able to press a button on the remote to access their heart rate, the latest blood pressure, etc. And finally, number 10, required disability awareness training for all hospital staff. You would think that the medical community is the most knowledgeable regarding how to interact with people with disabilities, but I have found them to be in serious need of training, such as how to navigate sighted guide with a blind person. As we continue with this week's edition of the Blindness and Disability News Hour, let's pay a visit, as we often do at this time of day, to NLS Music Notes from the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. And that's a service of the Library of Congress. You can find them online at blogs.loc.gov. This week's story was published on February 9th. It's written by Brian McCurdy. Song Stories, Stevie Wonder's Happy Birthday. Stevie Wonder's awards and achievements speak for themselves. He has received 25 Grammy Awards, an introduction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, sold more than 100 million records worldwide, and he even earned an Academy Award for Best Original Song for I Just Called to Say I Love You from the 1984 film The Woman in Red. Lest we forget, he was also the 2009 recipient of the Gershwin Prize for Popular Song from the Library of Congress. However, these accolades only speak partially to the impact of his incredible career. As we celebrate Black History Month, let us take a closer examination of one of Wonder's most important songs, Happy Birthday. According to Charles Safia, who wrote about Stevie Wonder for the Montgomery Advertiser in 2021, Wonder called Coretta Scott King, the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King, in the summer of 1979 to tell her about a dream that he had. He said, quote, I said to her, you know, I had a dream about this song, and I imagined in this dream I was doing this song. We were marching, too, with petition signs to make Dr. King's birthday to become a national holiday, unquote. The song was Wonder's 1980 release, Happy Birthday, now lovingly known as one of his most iconic works. Wonder learned about King early in his life, having first heard him speak on the radio when he was five years old. In a video he posted on King's birthday in 2021, Wonder mentioned a later encounter with King, saying, quote, Dear Dr. King, I met you when I was 14 years of age. You were a hero, and you have become an inspiration. More than any award I have ever received, I want you to know that I am thankful for how you influenced my place of love, which allowed me to push the needle of love and equality forward, unquote. According to Sophia, Wonder performed at a rally at the Georgia Capitol on King's birthday in 1979. He encouraged the onlookers to write to their congressional representatives to demand passage of the bill. In August of that year, 
He appeared in an interview with Barbara Walters on 2020 and announced a four-month tour across America to campaign for the holiday. Originally, Bob Marley was supposed to join the tour, but Marley later learned that he had a rare form of cancer that would lead to his untimely death. Gil Scott Heron joined the tour in his absence. Stevie Wonder's work in the studio on his 1980 album release, Hotter Than July, paired his vintage sound with his renewed purpose. The tracks contained his trademark sounds and catchy lyrics, but he also included a picture of Dr. King and a note imploring his fans to support the bill. The 1980 release of the single Happy Birthday was the apex of the campaign. On January 25, 1981, Scott Heron, Diana Ross, and Jesse Jackson joined Wonder at a 1980 rally on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. According to Scott Heron's 2012 memoir, the crowd chanted, Martin Luther King, we took a holiday. This would lead into a singing of Happy Birthday as Wonder spoke. He kept intensifying his efforts, financing an office in Washington to lobby for the holiday's passage and working with Congressional Black Caucus members to achieve the goal. Wonder also held two more rallies at the Capitol in 1982 and 1983. Despite a 16-day Senate filibuster, the bill would pass. Congressman John Conyers, the bill's sponsor and Wonder's congressional representative from Michigan, Scott King and Wonder were all present when President Reagan signed the bill into law on October 19, 1983. On the evening of January 20th of 1986, the country's first official Martin Luther King Day, there were three concerts that commemorated the occasion. According to the Washington Post, there were gatherings at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., New York City's Radio City Music Hall, and Atlanta's Civic Center. Wonder even took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post that day to share the lyrics of Happy Birthday. At the end of the evening, Wonder, Diana Ross, Elizabeth Taylor, Bob Dylan, and renewed producer Quincy Jones took the stage for a rousing performance of Happy Birthday. The three concerts raised funds for the King Center for Nonviolent Social Change and Malcolm King College in Harlem. In a 2017 interview with National Public Radio, Wonder was asked about his push for the MLK holiday. He responded, quote, I never saw it as being political. I just saw it as being the right thing to do. I just felt that a man who had fought for the economic, social, and civil rights for all people should be recognized for the greatness that he did, and for those like himself who lived and died for that should be recognized, unquote. Stevie Wonder's determination for the bill's passage is a great lesson for all of us. As he told Rolling Stone magazine in 1986, quote, I had a vision of the Martin Luther King birthday as a national holiday. I mean, I saw that. I wrote about it because I imagined it, and I saw it, and I believed it. So I just kept that in my mind until it happened, unquote. We hope you learned or enjoyed learning about the amazing impact of Stevie Wonder's classic song, Happy Birthday. If you'd like to learn more about the material discussed in this post, then please consider these selections from the NLS Music Collection.
Please note that all materials listed below are also available to borrow by mail, not only through BARD. Please contact the music section to borrow talking books on digital cartridge or borrow hard copies of Braille music. Call us at 1-800-424-8567, extension 2, or email us at nlsm at loc.gov. And first, we have a few selections in audio. First, from Bill Brown, All in Love is Fair. Bill Brown teaches the Stevie Wonder piano solo, All in Love is Fair, without the use use of music notation. It includes orchestrated backing tracks, intermediate level, at call sign DBM 03000. Next, also from Bill Brown, For Once in My Life. Bill Brown teaches how to play For Once in My Life on piano by Stevie Wonder, without the use of music notation. Cartridge only at DBM 03719. Isn't she lovely? Flat pick solo for guitar. This also comes from Bill Brown. And, quote, this arrangement takes the Stevie Wonder hit and makes it into a great-sounding intermediate-level jazz rock guitar solo. The lesson starts off with a full demonstration of the solo and then teaches the rhythm guitar parts as well as the solo guitar part. The entire lesson is taught in short phrases, describing every note and finger used, totally by ear, without tab, music, or video. At the end of the lesson, there are backing tracks in three different configurations for you to play along with, unquote. And that came from the publisher's website, and you can find this at call sign DBM 04476. Also, from Bill Brown, My Cherie Amour. Bill Brown teaches how to play My Cherie Amour on the piano without the use of music notation at DBM 03319. And finally, in audio, well, not quite finally, finally from Bill Brown, however, Bill Brown teaches Ribbon in the Sky, teaches how to play the Stevie Wonder Rhythm and Blues song Ribbon in the Sky on the piano without the use of music notation. It includes backing tracks and is at intermediate level, DBM 03378. And the final audio selection from the Library of Congress Music Division, Stevie Wonder, Sketches of a Life. Stevie Wonder talks to Norman Middleton of the Library's Music Division about his Library of Congress commission, Sketches of a Life, and his thoughts about composition and music. And then, Wonder, the awardee of the second Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song, premieres Sketches of a Life, a sprawling hybrid pop classical concerto written between 1976 and 1994. The work was unveiled through a commission by the Library of Congress in the Coolidge Auditorium in 2009. And you can find this at call sign DBM 04282. And finally, we have a few selections in Braille. First, Popular Music Lead Sheets number 106. This includes Stevie Wonder's song, Part-Time Lover. It includes melody, words, and chord symbols in lead sheet format. And you can find this at BRM35729. 
From Stevie Wonder himself, happy birthday. For voice and piano with chord symbols in line-by-line and bar-over-bar format. At BRM30706. Also from Stevie Wonder, lately. Keyboard accompaniment with voice outline in bar-over-bar format. At BRM36194. Next, from Stevie Wonder, Sir Duke. For voice and piano with chord symbols in line-by-line and bar-over-bar formats at BRM24701. And finally, from Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. Includes words, melody, chord symbols, and piano accompaniment in line-by-line and bar-over-bar formats at BRM26034. As we continue with this week's edition of the Blindness and Disability News Hour, let's kind of continue with the musical theme here a bit. But we're going to go tech on you here, folks, because we've got a brand new edition of Access World, the magazine from the American Foundation for the Blind, and you can find them at afb.org. And this one concerns music technology. The Mustang GT Amp from Fender. A Case Study in Voice-Over Accessibility. And this was written by Bill Holton. Two years ago, I used my renewed interest in playing the guitar to explore the ways that YouTube, smartphone apps, and other modern technologies could make pursuing a hobby more accessible. Well, as my family is known to say, he's at it again. In this article, I'm going to use these same guitars as a springboard to talk about the benefits and limitations of an ever-growing trend in the consumer electronics marketplace. Pairing, accessing, and controlling a physical device with a smartphone app or smart speaker. If you're like me, you've already had experience in this realm. Myself, I operate my thermostat and yard sprinklers entirely via my iPhone with and Alexa, and or Hey Google. Each of these offers me complete access to controls which would otherwise be touchscreen only. At the other end of the access spectrum, however, when I needed to purchase a new washer and dryer, I paid extra for smartphone and Alexa compatibility. And since you can't test large appliances in the store, it wasn't until the set was delivered that I learned the smartphone app wasn't accessible and Alexa offered few commands other than check status. In my very first article for Access World, Reaching Out, How You Can Help App Developers Improve Accessibility, I discussed reaching out to developers when you encounter issues of app accessibility. In the article, I mentioned that the smaller the company, the easier this would likely be. Sure enough, when the initial release of the control app for my sprinkler system had a few voiceover quirks, I was actually able to speak to one of the developers, who fixed the issues in short order. The appliance company was a different story altogether. I tried several times to report my issues, but the response was, say it with me, quote, I will happily pass your comments and suggestions to the members of our team, unquote. So, back to guitars. My first guitar was an acoustic, but it wasn't long before I, like Bob Dylan before me, was ready to go electric. 
The Center for People with Disabilities Beyond Vision program provides peer support groups for people who are visually impaired or blind. Connect with members of your community, create new relationships, learn new skills and techniques, listen to guest speakers, and learn how to connect with local resources. Beyond Vision events are hosted monthly on the third Wednesday of every month at 1 p.m. and are accessed online through Google Meet. Upcoming topics by month include March. Blind Shell Classic 2. March. Blind Shell Classic 2. March. Blind Shell Classic 2. To attend an event, you may RSVP by emailing beyondvision at cpwd.org or by calling 720-526-2804. Again, that is 720-526-2804. Once registered, you will receive a link or call-in information to join through your computer, tablet, or phone. Space is limited, so please RSVP as soon as possible. If you are unable to make the sessions, but you want to get connected with a skills trainer, request an accommodation, or find more information, please contact Estefania Corral by emailing estefania at cpwd.org or by calling 720-526-2804. That number again is 720-526-2804. Welcome to 2023 Talks, where we are following our democracy in historic times. Do the responsible thing. Raise the debt ceiling in a bipartisan way like we always have, and let's work together to fund the government. Senator Patty Murray of Washington says spending cuts sought by House Republicans will put further strain on American households. The GOP has yet to offer a plan to cut spending in exchange for lifting the debt ceiling, but many Republicans have focused on non-defense items, including social programs, as a way to trim the budget. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has vowed to only allow a vote with no conditions attached. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says the U.S. risks a catastrophic default between July and September if the nation's debt limit is not raised. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley officially announced her candidacy for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination Wednesday. And take it from me, the first minority female governor in history, America is not a racist country. In her speech, Haley drew heavily on her background as the child of Indian immigrants. She also called for mandatory mental competency tests for politicians older than age 75. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine says Congress must examine the February 3rd train derailment in East Palestine. He says Norfolk Southern Railroad was not required to notify the state that the train carried hazardous materials because they were not carried in every rail car. Frankly, uh, if this is true, and I'm told it's true, uh, this is absurd. Residents near the Ohio-Pennsylvania border were forced to evacuate their homes for several days and are still encouraged to drink from bottled water. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee heard testimony Wednesday regarding fentanyl trafficking. Dr. Raul Gupta, director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, says roughly 110,000 Americans died last year of drug overdoses involving synthetic opioids. This crisis does more than cause tragic and preventable deaths. It is tearing the very fabric of our nation. The U.S. sanctioned three fentanyl traffickers last month as part of a larger effort to break the fentanyl supply chain. 
Fake news became a popular defense for questions and stories former President Trump didn't like. Well, when you when you report fake news, no, when you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Go ahead. Mr. President. Now a new survey finds more than half of Americans believe national news organizations mislead or misinform the public. The Gallup poll finds just 35 percent of people believe most national news outlets can be relied on to deliver necessary information. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Did you know AINC offers time and weather services on our regular phone menu? Just call 303-786-7777, extension 5, for your local time and weather report. No internet needed.